going to continue our walk through Colossians. We're down to verses 15 through 20 in chapter 1. And I've been telling you for a couple of weeks, this is what is most often referred to as a Christological hymn. That sounds like something big and important. It is. It just means it's about Christ. It's a Christological hymn. Uh, there's some debate about whether or not that this passage was a was a hymn, a song that was used in the church commonly before Paul wrote Colossians. It really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether it was or whether it wasn't. But it's something that, that Paul puts in here and is going to share with us to kind of encapsulate who Jesus Christ is. And we're going to talk a little bit as we go into this about how, um, how he describes Christ, why he's describing Christ this way, and, and what false teaching that he was uh, combating there in the church at Colossae. But before we, before we go there, I know we just prayed, but I always like to pray over the Word as well. And so we're just going to ask God to open our hearts, open our minds, and that you're going to get something new, fresh, not because it's some new revelation, but because it maybe it's just gonna gonna open your eyes to something about who Christ is today. So let's pray over that. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for your promises. I thank you for who you are. And so, God, I just pray this morning that you will take this effort that we're making to just walk our way through this book of Colossians, and that you'll take this passage about your Son Jesus Christ, and that God, you're going to open our eyes a little more to who he is. Not only who he was, but who he is and who he will continue to be. And very personally, who he will be in our lives. And so God, I thank you for that. And I give you all the praise and all the glory. God, I pray that you will help me to be out of the way and let your word take the forefront. Let the message of your son, Jesus Christ, be what we see. In the name of your son, our Lord and Savior. We pray. And the church together said, Amen. Amen. All right, let's look at this scripture. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. This is what it says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth are things in heaven. Here's what we're going to talk about today. Here's, here's three focal points for us. This kind of let you know where we are as we're going through the message. How about that? Uh, number one, we're going to talk about that Jesus existed before creation. That's going to be verse 15. Number two, we're going to talk about that he is the agent of creation, which we'll see around verse 16. And then in verse 17, we're going to talk about how that he is before all things and he holds them together. And that's the only that's the three verses we're going to do out of these today. Um, we're going to divide this hymn up into two pieces and do these through these three 
um, today. So Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So what is, what is he saying? That's what we're always trying to figure out. Is what is the word saying to us? And, and this is what Paul ends up speaking to the people there. And, and he says, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, here's something you got to know, because this is why I always tell you it's important that we know Scripture in context. <clears throat> It'd be kind of like going and picking something out of history and picking a quote that someone made in some culture, you know, 200 years ago, and then you don't understand the culture. Because then you don't really have an idea of what it is that they're talking about, what they're referring to. You don't understand the kind of implications it would have when it's said in that particular environment. Some things that we would hear today don't sound all that powerful. They're not that... They're not that different from something that we would hear. But when you put them in context, say in our country 50 years ago, it was powerful for someone to say those things because the culture was not supportive maybe of that type of statement. The culture was not supportive uh, of, of someone taking that kind of stand. So someone would take that stand today and we go, okay, that's a, that's a nice statement. But someone took that stand 50 years ago and we would say, man, they're putting their life on the line. That's a power, and here's why, because of what was going on in our country or somewhere around the world. What was happening, there was a group called the Gnostics, and, and you spell this G-N-O-S-T-I-C, all right? So you've learned something today, you now know how to spell Gnostic, all right? G-N-O-S-T-I-C. The G is silent. There you go, all right. See, we're awake today. All right, so these Gnostic teachers, they claimed that God made the world through several emanations of himself. These emanations that, that they said would, would take place. Now, what's an emanation? An emanation is basically a reduced version of something. It's almost like saying that you begin to split something off, but each portion that splits, you know, let's say that you, you said, well, uh, I'm going to create an emanation of myself, but it's only 90% accurate. And then that 90% accurate emanation produces a emanation that's 90% accurate. Okay, so it's only 90% accurate of something that was 90% accurate. I know this is like math on a Sunday. I understand. I'm not asking you to do the math, okay? But and then it would be like then that third emanation then creates a 90% accurate version of something that was 90% accurate of something that was 90% accurate. All right, I'll stop there before everybody gets the glazed donut look and goes, I did not come to church on Sunday to hear math. Okay, That's what they believed. They believed that, that, that God, in creating the world and all the things that are in the world, that they were just um, these decreasingly accurate versions coming out of, of God. It means something that flows out of the original. Here's the key is they also believe that Christ was one of those emanations. So Christ was not a truly accurate representation of God, and they didn't view him as being part of the Godhead. They didn't view him as being part of that trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the three in one. They, just, they believed that God created Christ, and he was a less accurate version of God himself. So when you know that that's what people were teaching, and then you read Paul saying, He is the image 
of the invisible God. An image is an accurate representation. It's not a likeness. It is an accurate representation. It's like taking a picture of someone versus someone that does a drawing. You know, the drawing is even to the best of its ability. It's not entirely accurate. It's, it's going to be a little off scale. It's going to have some slight variations. But, but a picture of some, that's a direct image, a photographic image of something. It captures what's there. Now, we don't like those oftentimes because we like to tell ourselves things, right? We, we tell ourselves stuff like, well, the camera adds 10 pounds. <laughs> right? Right? Because we go, well, I looked at that picture, and that picture does not look like what I think I see in the mirror. <laughs> hey, camera don't lie. <laughs> oh, I better move on. <laughs> Maybe you got to fine-tune what you think you see in the mirror. Anyway, all right, I need to quit. Just go on. This was a powerful statement for this to come out when, when Paul starts describing who Christ is to say right out of the gate, he is the image of the invisible God. There's a couple of things that Paul is really telling us. One is what we just talked about. He says, look, he is not some emanation that, that doesn't accurately reflect who God is. He is the physical image of the invisible God. So he's making clear to us that you can, in seeing Christ, you can see who God is. Because He is that accurate reflection of God's image. Now, he also makes a, a further statement in the second half of this. He says, the firstborn over all creation. Now, they also, the Gnostics also had another problem in this because then they believed that since God created Christ in their minds then essentially Christ had a birthday. And not like the way that we try to celebrate Christmas as some idea of a birthday, but that Christ actually, period, in cre being created, that he had a moment of birth. Okay? And where we recognize that John chapter 1, verse, verses 1 through however many, talks about, says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and, and, and that then he became flesh, Christ. The, the word become flesh, and then he came and he lived among us, and we beheld his glory as the only begotten Son of the Father. Paul is making clear, he's defeating arguments that are there that are affecting this local church. And the first one being, uh, then, as we said, that, that he is not some emanation, he's not some, some creation of God, but he is the perfect image of God, but he is also the firstborn over all creation. Well, if Paul is trying to combat the idea that Christ had a beginning point, that Christ had a creation point, why does he say then that he's the firstborn over all creation? It's a challenge in us understanding the word. All right, Because when we see firstborn, we think, well, he was the one who was firstborn. What, what Paul is actually conveying with this word is not referring to time, but he's referring to place and status. Firstborn means of first importance or of first rank. You've got to remember that in the Jewish culture, that the firstborn was the one who was to receive the inheritance. 
It was about position. It was about rank. You go, wait a minute, though. You just said the one who is first born is the one who receives the rank. Well, I want to show you another place in Scripture to let you see how this is used to not mean the one who is physically born first, but to mean the one who actually has the position. And it's Psalms 89, verse 27. This is actually speaking about Solomon, who's David's son, but he was not David's firstborn in the physical. But this is what the word says about him. I will also make him my firstborn, greatest of the kings of the earth. He was not physically the firstborn, but because he would take position as the greatest of the kings of the earth. By the way, that's a great Bible trivia thing for you. You need to tuck that away, because who knows? There might be one Sunday night here where instead of Bible study, we just have some massive Bible trivia thing. I know you're so excited by that concept. But I tell you what, now, if you get, these, if you get some teenagers and some kids fired up and they start dogging out some parents and, and beating them, all of a sudden it's on like a chicken bone, I'm just telling you. But this is where, so, so we see elsewhere in Scripture that someone who is not physically the firstborn, the term then conveys simply their status and their position. When we put these, these two together, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, this is why we can understand when Jesus in chapter 14, verse 9, again says, He that has seen me hath seen the Father. In John 1.18, we recognize that although God is invisible, Jesus Christ has revealed him to us. Here's a thought for you. Nature reveals the existence, the power, and the wisdom of God, but nature cannot reveal the essence of God. It can reveal that God exists. It can reveal God's power when we see the created things. Look, look, at, look at somebody next to you. I'm not going to make you say anything to them, I promise. Look at somebody next to you. All right, that means your head has a turn, guys. You know, look at somebody next to you. On your left and on your right is what most pastors want to say. Look to your left and to your right. I'm looking around. Folks is looking nice. Y'all looking good. That's what Dennis always says. Y'all looking nice today. Recognize something. When you look at people that are around you, they are evidence that God exists and of God's power and of the wisdom of God. Now, you might be looking at some people around you and thinking, I don't know about God's wisdom on this deal. <laughs> That's all right. You just need to get your heart right. You need to be loving those folks. Look, I mean, the very act of creation shows the existence, the power, and the wisdom of God. People say, oh, I, I don't, uh, you know, because I believe that everything just, you know, it, there was this big explosion and all that stuff. When's the last, y'all heard me say this before, when's the last time you, had, you blew something up and a watch came out of it? <laughs> I mean, really? I mean, you know, you went and set off one of them M80 firecrackers and boom, and a Timex came out of the explosion. I mean, honestly, that's what people are trying to claim. You know, there was this explosion. What do, what do explosions do to life? They kill it. You, you've, you've never really seen an explosion blow up and, and cause life. You see explosions blow up, and it destroys life. I mean, if you don't, want, you don't believe that, you know, convince somebody to let you go out here on the fort and say, hey, I want to go lay on a grenade, pull the pin, and watch it bring life. It doesn't work, I promise. Okay, don't try that, because they don't want you to say unity points, they'd, they'd go do that. He's the image of the invisible God. Looking around at the people around you, then what you do is you recognize, man, 
These folks are evidence of God and His wisdom and, and His power. We get to verse 16. Here's what we see. He says, For everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. Now, if we were in Genesis chapter 1, we would see that the Trinity was active in creation because we can see where it talks about that the Spirit of God hovered in the darkness above the, the, the shapeless void and all this stuff. We can see it mentioned about God. But here's, here's the truth. What we also see, though, very clearly is that it was through Jesus, it was by Jesus, and it was for Jesus that the creative action took place. Here he says, everything was created by him, and he says all things have been created through him, and all things have been created for him. So we see the by him, meaning that it was his action that caused it to happen. Through him means there was something that acted on him, and then it came through him, by him. And then we see that everything was created for him. Now, heaven and earth, we're going we're to talk about that here again in a moment. But heaven and earth, let's talk about that. Heaven and earth lets us see that Jesus created both the seen and the unseen things, both physical and spiritual. Here, here's an ironic thing. A lot of people you know, struggle with believing in the spiritual. I don't believe in stuff that I can't see. Great. Do you believe your body is made up of atoms? You know, cells, all this kind of stuff. Do you believe that stuff? I mean, if you do, when's the last time that you, without the aid of something else, that you saw them? Man, I was, I was just looking at my hand the other day, and I saw these cells. <laughs> I saw the nucleus down in there, and I was like, look at that. I went and told Michelle, look at my nucleus. And she said, well, here's a Kleenex. <laughs> you know. I mean, there are a lot of things. That, can you imagine if you went back 100 years? Maybe, maybe 200 years. If you even went back all the way to biblical times, nobody had any microscopes. Nobody had, I mean, you know, we see some of that stuff start coming a lot earlier than what we think it is that they started showing up with, with astronomers and folks you know, watching the sky and all this. But, but people weren't exactly down to the level of spotting, you know, spotting the nucleus in a cell or anything like that, much less being able to do atomic fission and, 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 and split, a, split a cell or anything like that. That stuff wasn't existing. So, just because you couldn't see it, you couldn't believe in it. There's a lot of things that I don't see. Uh, I've, I've heard the, the, the term, I don't know how many times people are talking about that, hey, I really don't see the wind, but I can feel it, I can hear it, I can experience it. But I can't see it. You go, oh yeah, I see the tree. No, you see the effect of it. Well, but, but I saw, I mean, there was, there was some smoke. No, you saw something that the wind did to something else. You don't really see it, you just, but we feel it. We can hear it. I can see the effect of it on other things, and so therefore I believe in it, even though I can't really see it. He says, everything was created in him, in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible. I'll tell you something. Here's something that Greek philosophers during this time, they had this concept. Because again, Paul is communicating truth about Jesus in order to counteract some false beliefs. Greek philosophers taught that everything needed three causes. It needed a primary cause, an instrumental cause, and a final 
cause. The, the primary cause was a plan. There had to be a plan on why something was going to happen. The instrumental cause was the power that would make the plan come to pass. And then the final cause was the purpose. Why? Why is this thing being done? So you had to have a plan on what's going to happen. You had to have the power to make it happen. And you had to have a purpose for why it was going to happen. And so Paul actually addresses this in this by him, through him, for him concept on why creation came to pass. He's going to explain why there was a plan, there was a power to get it done, and what the purpose was. And what he did was he says that Christ is the primary cause because he planned it. The instrumental cause is Christ had the power to produce creation. And the final cause, he did it for his own pleasure. And we go all the way back to Genesis and, and, and the Godhead is there and he says, hey, we need to make something. <laughs> let's, let's create man in our own image. He's going to bring glory to us. He's going to bring, and, and, but let's, let's create man for, so that we can enjoy the experience with him. As Brian often says, so God wanted to walk with us. He created us so that he could have relationship with us. In the same way, he created us and he gave us the opportunity to choose. He gave us the option of deciding to have relationship with him because forced relationship is really no relationship at all. Many people then in the middle of this passage, they look and they say, okay, so I understand that he created both everything that's in heaven and that's on earth, the visible and the invisible. And a lot of people in recent months have gotten hung up on, on the second part of this verse because they misinterpret what it means because they don't understand it contextually. And so what people do is they go, ah, and see it says here that Jesus has created the thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. So uh, I actually saw someone post here recently and said, God selects all the presidents of the United States. I said, dude, you need to go get some good theology, man. You need, you need to get some of that stuff straight. And, oh, I said, well, wait a minute. So if you believe that God is selecting the presidents of the United States, then that means he selected all of them. So you don't get any amens when you say that kind of stuff. That doesn't mean he selected some of them. That doesn't mean he selected one ever so often. If God... So we get stuff, we just read something, we don't take it in context and understand what this is. While you could interpret this this way if you were just reading this in a vacuum, but you can interpret it that way if you read it in context. Because in context, you have to understand the other things that the Gnostics were teaching. One of the other things that the Gnostics were teaching was that they believed that angels had the same type of authority and power as Jesus Christ, that he was just like one of them because he was just another one of those emanations, as were angels and other spiritual beings. So they were teaching that, hey, everything outside of God himself, Christ, angels, demons, you name it, whatever, that all of these spiritual things had the same level of authority and they had the same position as did Jesus Christ. So what Paul actually is saying in this verse is he is saying this. I want you to understand that although you believe that, number one, he's building on the previous verse, 
even though you believe that Christ was created, I'm telling you, he's not. He's the direct image of God. And not only is he the direct image of God, but he wasn't created like the angels and therefore on the same plane as them. But Jesus is the one who created all things who are, that are in heaven or that are on earth that are visible and are invisible. So all the spiritual things got created by him, all the physical things got created by him, and by being created by him, it is not equal to him. He is above them. Everything was created by him. In fact, we can, we can see, again, we can see other places in Scripture where it makes this clear. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Familiar passage. For our battle is not against what? Flesh and blood. Okay, so that means it's not physical, right? Okay, so if he starts this out saying our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against... All right, that's telling us that what he's about to say is what our battle is is not flesh and blood, but it's something different. All right, it's not physical, it's something else. So then here's what he says it is. It's against rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. Okay, let's back up. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. Rulers, authorities, world powers, spiritual forces, evil in the heavens. So this portion in Colossians, he's not saying, oh, God created all of the government structures and God created us. Because by the way, God only created one government structure. And by the way, it's not the United States, and it wasn't Russia, wasn't Japan, wasn't Cuba, wasn't any of those things. God created one government structure, and it was a theocracy. It was a theocracy. A theocracy means you are ruled by God. That was what he created once that, once that we see the fall in the garden, and after that, when God establishes a structure, he creates a theocracy where that he directly leads the people. But then we see the, the children of Israel, they decided they didn't like that anymore. You know, being directly led by God is not any fun. Now, I'm not saying that. Now, I wasn't what I was saying now. You know? But that's what, honestly, that's what they said. They said, hey, we want to be like everybody else. All the other kingdoms not led by God were led by someone other than God. Well, what is there to be led by other than God? You're going to be led by people. You're going to be led by kings. You're going to be led by the enemy, quite honestly. And so they said, we don't want to be where that we're led by God anymore. We want to be like everybody else. We want to look like everybody else. So we need to have us a king. And you remember, Samuel goes and he says, he says God... Man, these people are kicking me to the curb. They're, they're, they're wanting, they're kicking me to the curb. And God speaks and says, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting me as their king. So the only true government structure that God ever established himself was he established that, that, that we would be led by him. People go, well, but then, but then God selected the king. He said, look, I'm going to let you have what you want. But remember, he told, then he told the prophet, he said, here's what I want you to tell the people. I want you to tell them what's going to happen when they go and select a king. He said, when they go and select a king, what's going to happen now is he's going to tax them. 
He's going to, to uh, basically take their children and, and put them to work in the government. He's going to put them in the army. He's going to make them serve and do other things. You're going to lose freedom when you do this because this is what, and, and, uh, what a, a, a human person is going to end up doing. He says, you just need to understand this is what's going to happen. Now you say, well, well, but can God bless in various structures? Sure. Sure, God can, God, because God will bless individuals that honor Him. But, but God was not saying, and He was not telling Paul here, uh, inspiring Paul to write in Colossians, that, hey, that God established all the thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities, because then you've got to say, well, wait a minute, then God selected Hitler. And you go, wait a minute now, but hold on for a second, because there's a, there's a king in, in the Old Testament named Cyrus that, was, that the Bible says that, that uh, God in speaking says that he's my servant, that I've raised him up. That's right. He didn't lead the people of Israel. He didn't lead God's people. He was not Israel's king. God will often use people that are, that are from other places. But God doesn't take sinful, evil people and put them over his his people. Now he will take, they were in captivity and God used Cyrus to actually set the people free. That's the first time when he re then released them because Cyrus looked and said, hey, I'm okay with you guys going back to your lands and worshiping your gods and all this. And people go, oh, see, see, he was used. But he also allowed other people from other religious backgrounds to do the same thing. That was part of his nature. That was part of, of what he would do is that he would allow people to return back to their lands. He, he just had a heart to do that. And God used that in order to deliver his people and allow them to return back to godly ways. But he was not their king over Israel itself. God will oftentimes use people from other situations to relieve his people of their troubles and their trials but that ungodly person god does not put that would be like saying that god wants to take a a habitual murderer and adulterer and make him your pastor no that's not god doesn't take people that are out of uh, line with his plan and his will and make them your his spiritual people's leader doesn't do that so whether it thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all these things have been created through him and for him. He is speaking to these people who are dealing with this Gnostic teaching, and he is telling them, no, no, all of the different levels of things that go on in the spiritual realms, God has created these things through Christ Jesus. They were created by Jesus, they were created through Jesus, and they were created for Jesus. This was one of the errant beliefs. It was there. Finally, our last, our last passages, chapter or verse seventeen, where he he. Um, in fact, let me let me get you back there. Verse seventeen. This is what it says: He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. Now, the first part of this this verse is a little bit of a refresher. Because he is again reminding the people that, that Christ was before all things. He didn't come in at some certain point in time and then creation happened. God didn't create Christ and then Christ created everything else. He was before all things. All things. And by him, all things hold together. I want to focus a lot on this second 
portion of verse 17, by him all things hold together. Not only did Jesus create everything, but he holds it all from falling apart. In, in other words, he keeps all creation from descending into chaos and basically coming apart at the seams. He sustains it all. This is where the idea, and you see this in the history of America, even in our, some of our founding documents and things like this, you'll see a phrase and it's called providence. It's this phrase about providence. And it is this concept that it is God that holds all things together and sustains all things. He provides, it is His providence, His holding it all together that allows us to continue forward, that keeps everything from just falling apart into chaos. There was a, there was a gentleman who is actually part of the Coptic church. How many of you are familiar with the Coptic church? Not the Coptic church, the Coptic church. All right, here's another spelling thing for you, C-O-P-T-I-C. You, you should have heard this phrase at least four times here that I know of. And in particular, when we were in the old building, um, we showed, when this first started happening, we showed a line of guys on a beach in orange jumpsuits. And it was one of the first times that we saw terrorists when they removed the heads of Christians. And it was in Egypt. And they were Coptic Christians. Because that is, a, that is an Orthodox Christian church, a, a denomination, a group of people, particularly there in Egypt. There was a, a gentleman who uh, many, many decades ago was one of their leaders. His name was Athanasius. I'm not going to make you spell that one. He made this statement about Christ holding all things together, and it's, it's just such a powerful statement. It's a little long, so I want you to see it, though. Here's what he said. He, the all-powerful, all-holy word of the Father, that's John 1.1, by the way, spreads his power over all things everywhere, enlightening things seen and unseen, holding and binding all together in himself. Nothing is left empty of his presence, but to all things and through all, severally and collectively, he is the giver and sustainer of life. He, the wisdom of God, holds the universe in tune together. He it is who, binding all with each and ordering all things by his will and pleasure, produces the perfect unity of nature and the harmonious reign of law. While he abides unmoved forever with the Father, he yet moves all things by his own appointment according to the Father's will. Man. All-powerful. All-holy. He's the word of the Father. Spreads his power. He enlightens things seen and unseen. He holds and binds it all together. His, he is all-present. That's why nothing is left empty of His presence. Have you ever thought about that? That when we talk about that, that God is omnipresent, that He is everywhere, do you realize that that means... And you've got to grasp this for a moment. If He is present everywhere, omnipresent, then that means in the moment when the drug user puts the needle in his arm, that God is still there. 
God's heart is broken by that. God's spirit is grieved by the damage that we do to ourselves, whether it's with a needle of a, of a drug user, whether it is cheating on your spouse, whether it is lying to your employer, whether it is being hateful towards someone who's not like you, whatever it is, but yet God is all-present. And so he sees, and his heart is grieved, and because he sees the plan that he had for us, and he sees the things that we do that are contrary to that plan. Nothing is left empty of his presence, but to all things and through all, severally and collectively, he is the giver and the sustainer of life. I've often heard from the scientific standpoint, I've often heard that if the, if the earth's rotation was just, you know, in, in comparison, if it was just fractionally off from what it is, that the earth would be uninhabitable. It would either be too hot or it would be too cold and, and human beings would not be able to exist on it. The, the orbits of the planets, the rotations that, that would go through, all of these things, it, it, things become conducive to the life that God created on it because it is all in perfection. It was all designed and put in place to work together as this perfect closed loop system. He it is who binds all with each and orders all things by his will and pleasure. Now here's the thing, is we look at the world around us and we say, but I don't understand. Because if you're saying that God created everything and, and that Jesus Christ was the agent of all of that and he holds all things together, then why is it? Why is it that people do bad things to each other? Why is it that, that there are tornadoes and there are earthquakes and there are all of these things? And so we have to go back and reflect on, was this how God originally created the world and created us? And we see in Genesis that it was not. In the very beginning, what God created was to be a perfect place. It was people that were to live in perfect harmony with Him, in perfect harmony with nature, in perfect harmony with each other, and yet our choices, our decisions through Adam and Eve to want more and to believe that God somehow was holding something out on us and so we want to be more like Him instead of loving and appreciating and, and walking in that relationship with Him then leads to the situation that we find ourselves in today where that, that the world then experienced sin to come in, changed how we reviewed each other, and then all of a sudden we end up with Cain and Abel Adam and Eve's two sons, and, and we end up with the first murder. All because that, that, that we weren't satisfied with what God had created. But yet when we read to the end of the book, we see that God's plan is that He is going to re redeem everything. And He is going to redeem mankind. And He is going to even redeem creation. The Bible tells us that that even now that all of creation groans in anticipation because the creation itself knows that it has been submitted to and subjected to this fall and this corruption. And it desires to be back to what God designed it to be. That's, that's where the struggle of people's hearts are. 
We know things aren't right. We know we want to. That, that, that's why the alcoholic wants to drink and, and get that feeling of everything being okay. The, the drug addict wants to, wants to shoot it because it gives them that sense of peace and, and I can forget about my worries. I can forget about us. That's why we go and buy things that we can't afford because we get that momentary high from, from getting, oh, I got this new thing and look how cool it is until 30 days later when you got to make the first payment. And you go, dear Lord, what did I do? <laughs> i got to pay for this now. It's why, it's why people walk away from, from their spouse because I want to try something new because I need to get some feeling, not understanding that ultimately God is the only one that can fill that void in our lives. You know, there's a, there was a song probably maybe early 2000s or whatever talked about there's a God-shaped hole. He's the only one that can fill that. Athanasius described this so well. One of the reasons that, that he talks about, that Paul talks about Jesus holding everything together, here's another teaching by the Gnostics. They taught that all matter was evil. Like all physical matter was evil. Everything. Everything, all matter was evil. In fact, they taught that there was, there was no way because of that that Jesus could have ever had a physical body because that would have put the Spirit of God in contact with evil matter, so therefore Jesus could never have even had a physical body. And Paul's declarations here, he's just wiping that stuff away because he says not only is Jesus before all things, but he is the one who holds it all together. He's created everything, so matter's not evil. The creation is not evil. Because when, when God finished the, the creation, remember it says he stops and he looked and he says it's good. What he's created is, is good. Because matter was not evil. Not only did, did Jesus create it all, but he holds it together. Now, I, I want to I take just a moment here in, in wrapping up. I want to take a moment and I want us to look at this verse Again, he is before all things, and by him, what things are held together? All. Let's try that one more time. You did, you did really good on that, but I just want you to get this. He is before all things, and by him, what? All things hold together. I, I want to I get personal for just a moment. What makes up all things? All things. Sounds like a rhetorical question, doesn't it? All things make up all things. Are you personally part of all things? You are? You make up all things. So let me ask you, I wonder how many times that I've heard somebody say this phrase. So I, I just don't know how I'm going to hold it all together. You ever heard anybody say something like that? I just don't know how I'm going to hold it all together during this. I'm going through some trial. I'm going through some, some terrible time, some circumstance, some tragedy. So I don't know how I'm going to hold it all together. But there is tremendous faith. I'm going to go ahead. Go ahead and come play for me. I'm there. I'm ready. I think there is tremendous faith in us stating that we don't know how we are going to hold it together. I think there is a tremendous truth in that. Because the truth is, according to this scripture, you were never going to be the one that was going to hold it together. You're not the one that holds. He didn't say that Jesus holds the important things together. 
He didn't say, well, Jesus holds most things together. We didn't say, well, Jesus holds the spiritual things together. He says, and by him all things hold together. Man, we can read this scripture stuff and we can, we can go, oh, this is great. You know, he's the invisible, you know, he's the image of, of God, the invisible God. And he's created everything, the visible and the invisible, the stuff in heaven and in the earth. You know, thrones and rulers, all the angelic stuff. And, and yeah, he's before everything. And by him, all things hold together. And, and we can just view that as being the earth. But I'm sorry, I'm part of all things. And you're part of all things. And when I read that, because I'm always looking for God, what's the personal application in this? Yes, I need to understand who you are and all that so that I, that I know who you are in my life. But... But God, what's the direct personal application? And for some reason, in these three verses, this is where he led me. By him, all things hold together. I went in and I told Michelle last night, because I always finish typing out all the rest of my notes on Saturday afternoon. And I was working through all that, and I said, I said, man, think about this. You weren't ever going to be able to hold everything together. So... When, when, we, when we look at each other and we make this confession to one another and say, I don't know how I'm going to hold this together, then you're at the best place you could be. As long as you don't stop there. Because that is the place where that we finally get freedom in that realization that I don't know how I will hold this together during this moment. Because we get a freedom. We get freedom to let go of our emotions. There are a lot of people that, that when, when we're going through something in life, when we're going through something that challenges us, that we look and we go, well, I, I can't let my emotions go because everybody's counting on me to hold it together. Everybody's counting on me. And guys, we're some of the worst about this. Let's just go ahead and be honest. We're some of the worst about this because when something's happening and, and when it's a difficulty, losing your job or a lot of other things, you, you fill in the blank in your mind of what it could be. We look and say, well, I can't let it show because my family's counting on me to hold it together. You know what? If your family's counting on you to hold it together, you've been spiritually leading them poorly. Because what we should be leading our families to is, you know what? I can't hold things together. I'm not going to be able to do this stuff. Yes, I'm going to do, do my best to be a, a good provider. I'm going to work hard. I'm not going to go be crazy and say, well, I'm not going to put effort in. But ultimately, in the end, I am fully reliant on God because He is the only one that can hold this all together. He is the, why? Because He sees the beginning of a thing before it ever happens, and He sees the end of a thing before it ever starts. He sees it all. He sees every bit of it that we can't see. And so we put our trust in Him and we rely on Him to say, God, I have to believe that your Son, Jesus Christ, is holding all things together and I'm part of all things, so hold me together. Because if, if, if you're sitting here today and you've been trying to hold your life together and you've been trying to keep everything in place and it's not working and you're realizing that, and the Holy Spirit speaks to you today and go, man, I'm, yeah, I'm struggling to keep all that together. But the reality is I've never asked God 
to let me experience his mercy through Jesus Christ because Jesus is the one that can hold it together and I haven't let him into my life. Maybe there's still, as we've talked over the last few weeks, maybe there's still those areas of your life that you've not released to him. You're still trying to hold that area of your life together instead of surrendering that to Jesus Christ because you're afraid of what will happen if you surrender it. Because you actually, at this point in time, you have more confidence in your own ability than you do in God's. Even though you know you're failing at it. Even though you know you're struggling, you're so afraid of what's going to happen if I let go. You would, you would rather hold on to a sinking ship because it lets you feel in control than to let go. God, God is sitting there saying, if you let go, I'm the one that's going to catch you and I'm going to keep you. And so we're going to take a moment, but I want you to see this, this prayer before we have an opportunity to pray it. Because if God is speaking to your heart and he's saying to you, you have not given your life to me. You have not allowed me to show you my mercy and to allow my son Jesus Christ to come in and now hold everything together because you've been trying to do it and you haven't surrendered to me. Then we're going to take a moment here in just a second and this is what we're going to pray. God, I want to experience your mercy today. I want you to see this. So you, I believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for my sins. I admit I'm a sinner in need of a Savior and I'm surrendering to Jesus as my Savior today. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Live in me as my leader from now on. I receive salvation today in Jesus' name. Amen.